Bardcast, your weekly podcast for insight into the articles to read, decks to play at FNM, cards to buy and sell, and insight from Robert Martin and Channel Fireball's own Tristan Sean Gregson. It's time for Hardcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's Hardcast. I am your host, Tristan Sean Gregson, here with my very devoted and willing to hang on the line for me to get through traffic and get home. Co-host Robert Martin, how you doing tonight? Doing great. Hey, I'm not the one who has to work to all hours of the night like you do. Uh, not yet, not yet. I mean, you're still in the aftermath of the uh, breakdown of New Phyrexia. We're kind of filling those last few holes, making those last few complete sets, and starting to actually have a, a, a kind of a steady inventory for the set. But uh, yeah, I guess the real the real work starts uh, not this week, but really next week when the final preparations for the team's trip, or I should rather say the sales team's trip to Nagoya starts. So I think this is kind of my last uh, normal-esque week of work until uh, the real hungering down begins. But, you know, that being said, do you have any uh, sweet Memorial Day weekend plans lined up? No, actually, it's time to get stuff cleaned, uh, taken care of for the summer. Ah. And now that I have the time to do it, I can actually do it. Well, when you know, if you're lucky like me and you have a 1,200-square-foot apartment, it's not hard to clean. I guess the term spring cleaning, uh, it uh, comes and goes in the same couple hours. I, I always volunteer to vacuum the apartment because it's such a breeze. <laughs> Are you already starting to plan out how you're going to pack for the trip and stuff like that already? I'm in the infancy stages of that. I haven't personally gone down and picked up my yen yet for whatever uh, kind of uh, purely personal purchases I'm going to make on the trip. And I need to find um, a power converter, an AC power adapter for that area, because I'm not sure how much cell phone use I'm going to be doing. Because I, I have to buy one of those like international cards or get something different for my cell phone, and I'm not sure if I'm going to go down that route. I mean, you know, Skype is always free. Uh, I just need internet access, so I need to make sure my my uh, computer can stay plugged in the entire time I'm there, and uh, then take as many pictures as possible. Because I don't know the next time I'll get to be back. How many people do you take on that trip to? Uh, it, it's funny. I, we have a couple of the in-store employees that are actually qualified for the event, and uh, the boss man upstairs is fairly confident that those employees will be uh, fairly available during the course of the weekend to work, which I think is uh, a rather unfair situation for them. I think it's kind of a trade-off where it's like, well, you know, like Channel Fireball picks up your hotel room in exchange for when you scrub out of the Pro Tour, you're uh, expected to contribute to the... Um, to the team that's working. I mean, right now we're really going on a skeleton crew uh, just because the expenses are so high. It's myself and two dedicated employees uh, and then my um, my lovely fiance who has volunteered her time in exchange for uh, a, a flight to Japan. And then from there, we'll, again, we'll see how much uh, help I get from our other two regular in-store employees that, as far as I'm concerned, are should be on a vacation, but we'll see what, how it works out. Well, it always makes it fun to have people with you that share the same interests and have a lot of fun like that. It was amazing to see how busy it was when, when we were at Dallas and just how incredibly insane it was. But I think this will be a little different kind of atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to um, you know meet the player base over there that's very familiar with Channel Fireball's work. Um, you know, Saito has talked for a long time about how, you know, we're, we're number one in the, you know, magic scene. If someone plays magic, they know Channel Fireball in Japan, which is, you know, it's, it's all been very exciting to hear, but, uh, I'm very excited to see it firsthand and, and really see how we're received there. And for me, I, I think it's really going to help make the trip a positive experience because 
you know, up until this point, I've just been stressing about uh, about all the details because this is our, our really our first overseas venture. Um, you know, just kind of making sure everything gets there, making sure everything gets back, not getting murdered at customs or anywhere else. And you know, thankfully we have a translator and uh, should be in good hands. But I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's funny, you know. If you take all the different aspects of it, you take, you know, the team of the players that are there. We get to hang out with them just a little bit. I mean, you, uh, he's a great person to bounce this stuff off of because you actually got to see the, the long work day full, uh, you know, firsthand at the booth. It's like, you know, everyone thinks like, oh, you go out to these events and sure, you're like, you're working, but you get to hang out and you get to see all these things. You get to do all this cool stuff. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I, I'm, I'm buried in a convention center 12 to 14 hours a day. Uh, Luis usually comes by. You know, takes cards, hopes to drop off uh, his, you know, luggage or whatever, and you know, he's gone. And the same for everybody else. They come to pick up cards, and I'll be lucky to sneak away to watch a feature match or hopefully, you know, queue at two in the morning or anything like that. So it's it's a work weekend, and it's uh it's very different from from being there to play, which I miss immensely. But uh, at least you know, at least you're you're in the room, you get the vibe. There's there you know the cool things are like finding out the tech the day of, seeing what people are playing. Thing how things adapt over the weekend, especially when there's a PTQ format that's the that's around the same time. So there there are opportunities for excitement, but it will be a long work week. It's a good thing to see for those who have not been involved with it to get a feel of how the whole business of it runs. Uh, yeah, I, I that's uh, you know it's something you were very interested in. For me, for me, I like to like we bring all this stuff to these shows, and I like to find like little gems of things that are just barely on the cusp of something we would bring with us, and then I hope it sells. I remember um, in, uh, was it, is it Texas or was it Denver? No, I think it was Denver. In Denver, we had a signed copy of Hellfire, which was like, do I really want to bring this card? Like, it's something that's like, you know, just sit on the website forever. Signed cards are kind of a harder item to sell. I was like, all right, screw it, we'll bring it. And it was only like a you know $11 card or something, and the first day we were there, some guy was like, oh, my God, that's just what I wanted. And it was the, like, that was like my, my my favorite sale of that weekend. And there was another event where we had like a slightly played Alpha Demonic Hordes that's been sitting around for a while, and that just happened to come with us. I sold that. I mean, like little stuff like that is like little moral victories for me. I think. I'm surprised you don't do with the group a little incentive, like if you can sell this card in exchange for X. We try that at the store, but the things that happens is the employees will just pool together and buy that stuff on their own, so they can prove us wrong. Like, oh, man, we'll never sell, you know, 50 Alter Reality or Mindbend or something. And we're like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. You know, you know, two guys will buy them all. They'll get the incentive, and then they'll just slowly trade them away, what they bought them for for people. So it's like they get the value out of it that way. We got a show this week. Uh, you know, the last time I checked, I thought this was the show. I was just going to talk about what I do every day. I just talk about what I do every day because that's pretty much, it's pretty much all I know at this point. I, I don't get to do anything else other than... Uh, Sort magic cards, plan trips for magic events, uh, and then buy cards off of people who ask me if I have paperwork for my Black Lotus I'm trying to sell, because apparently that's that's what people expect now. I don't know. I, I, but, but down, a, down a different rabbit hole. I, I can't get that guy out of my mind from the last event I was at. I, he asked if the Lotus was real. I was like, of course it's real. He's like, do you have paperwork for it? And I was like, uh, I can sign a piece of paper saying it's real. I don't really know what else to tell you. What do they expect with the football autographs when they have it certified or something? Now, in the, in this gentleman's defense, like when he first asked, the Lotus was signed by both Richard Garfield and Christopher Rush, which I mean, I, I guess is rarer. It's not, you know, in, in my line of work, it's not extraordinarily uncommon to see something like that. Um, and I thought what he wanted was authentic, uh, authenticity of the signatures. 
So I started to talk about how, you know, like I could tell and I have things signed by both these people. But quickly the conversation turned to, well, I just want to know the card is real. Like, don't you have like authentication paper or paperwork for the card? And I was like, huh, well, no, I'm not really. I mean, like, I guess part of my job is being able to tell if it's a fake. And uh, we've already kind of got through that process because there's a $1,000 price tag on the card sitting in the display case. But, uh, yes, it's real. Some people just amaze me sometimes with what they'll say and do. That's okay. I mean, I, I mean, if I was to continue down this rabbit hole of awkward things, I guess, especially at smaller shows, which is like me and and one goon working on the weekend, uh, and we have like two display cases with the cards. It's kind of a, a small deal. You know, someone will come up and be like, uh, did you guys bring Strafe? And like, this is a you know a, a sealed deck tournament. We usually bring Type Two cards, or even you know better a Type Two tournament. We have expensive Type Two inventory. I'm like, no, 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 didn't bring that. Hey, do you have a Dothy Horror? Like. Okay, well, that might be a cube card, but no, we didn't, we didn't bring that. We didn't bring that. Do you have a captain's maneuver? Like, ugh, all right. This conversation's going nowhere. This is what we have. But but you you have a list of topics you actually want to talk about today that, that's more engaging. So let, let's start there. Providence coming up. It's the first of four. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. I'm just curious of what decks you think will do well. And Well, Luis has actually tested for this format a lot more than he has for legacy tournaments in the past. For Columbus and uh, Madrid, he just kind of winged it. He played blue spells, because that's what he knew. Um, you know, I couldn't be further away from this format. Usually my barometer for how legacy is doing are, you know, Star City Games results and sales. Those are the, because I don't play the format and I'm not around on the nights when it's going on in our store. And, um, you know, while I pay a little more attention to it online, it's still not the, the perfect picture of the metagame. I do know that uh, Luis will be slinging some blue spells and some white spells this weekend. Uh, you know, mental misstep has obviously changed the format quite a bit. I think Mike Flores' article from this week talks a lot about that and uh, gives all the key points that, you know, I could just brainstorm without actually playing the format but being around it and knowing what was uh, good beforehand. I mean, I think... You know, one of the most obvious things was, you know, High Tide is pretty much dead in the water. Uh, you know, all of its key spells cost one, and now everyone has access to this new spell. The, the great thing about Legacy is that, you know, any given tournament, there's the opportunity for something to really come out of nowhere. And at a Grand Prix, even more so than a Star City Games circuit event. You know, at the circuit events, you're going to get a lot of people that are like, they think they have a fixed metagame, they think they need to go in and beat it with something else. So you're not going to see as as many people coming and playing like their favorite deck or like the the combo they like the most or the you know the aggro deck that they you know fell in love with and you know players like Luis and you know Pat Chapin and um, other people I've talked to really feel that you know Legacy is such a wide open format that it's 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 fun in the in the respect that you can play what you know best what you've honed you know. And if you play to the best of your ability, you're going to do better than, you know, like, the best deck piloted by the player that picked it up two days before because he was told to. And for me, that's really exciting. And, and again, at a Grand Prix format, you're going to see more opportunities for something exciting and new to come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, I'd love to see a new Ad Nauseam build that was, you know, awesome, you know, with or without missteps, you know, with the ability to get around them or not. I know Matt and Ass have been testing that uh, <clears throat> in this last week. Uh so, you know, when you, if I was to name decks and I think what was going to be there, I wouldn't have much to tell you. I think that as far as the meta, Merfolk will probably be the number one most represented deck. Lord of Atlantis just keeps seeing him going up and up in value and all of the friends that surround him. 
as players like Alex Pertoncini prove week in and week out that that is one of the best decks in Legacy. Um, but again, it's you know it's going to be exciting. I think that something with counter magic in it of varying numbers and probably some Swords of Plowshares is probably going to take the tournament. But I don't have much insight beyond that. So who do you think will be a top eight competitor there? <sighs> like I can think of I, I can think of all these people. I mean, like I, I would like to say Owen just because he does nothing but play magic and he's you know bouncing ideas back and forth with Luis all the time. And I have seen Luis test a lot more uh, for this format than before. Yeah, you know, like. Again, in a format like this, I would like to take players that are just gonna, you know, play the closest to flawless magic possible. People like Ocho, people like We, or sorry, people like Luis, people like uh, Owen that have a capacity. If I was gonna go in not knowing anything, that would be the kind of people I would pick. But again, anyone anyone that has an out there idea, I mean, this could be a tournament where uh, a Patrick Chapin or a Connolly Wood style type player with their own idea could catch a lot of people off guard and. Uh, and make their way to top eight. Although, it's a little more awkward when, you know, the, the foundation of the format is Force of Wills and different, various forms of counter magic. It kind of makes combo decks um, one step behind already. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. I'm just wondering if the people that are on, will they have an advantage because they're playing Legacy week after week after week? Uh, y- yes. I don't think there's a reason why they wouldn't. Um, again, I think, you know, when players talk about, like, the Pro Tour, for example... They talk about some of the hurdles, and I think this is a good example. You know, players that play their local FMs or their local PTQs over and over and over again oftentimes get trapped in their own kind of metagame. And one thing you have to think about that's different between a Star City Circuit event and a national Grand Prix that's not only going to draw people from the United States and Canada, uh, but also possibly going to draw people from Europe because it's about as close as we can get in North America that it's going to be more wide open, and you're going to see things you weren't expecting. Um, and being prepared for that is as important as knowing the metagame of a circuit event. So do they have a leg up? I definitely think that's the case. Do I think that that advantage slips away really quickly in such a wide open field? Yes. So, again, it's, it's a skill-testing format. I think you're going to see the best players or the most innovative players, I mean, to, to borrow a phrase, I'm sure I'm going to get taxed by, by Pat for using that, um, really shine at this event. Time to potentially sell out of Legacy. See, uh, I mean, you could speculate saying, like, this is the week to sell your Legacy cards. This is the week to, to cash in on the most, because it's going to be the biggest tournament that's promoted by Wizards this year for Legacy. Um I don't agree with that. I think that this is the best time to put your, you know, sit on your hands and watch and see what happens. Because if this is a 1,200-person, a 1,400-person turnout tournament, it's going to be great for the format. It's going to make more people interested in it. It's going to make more people want to pick up those cards and play with them. Um, it, it, it couldn't hurt it. I don't think that there. I don't think that after this weekend, all of a sudden, any cards are going to just drop off the map in value. I mean, unless you know, there's a deck that everyone thinks is going to do really well, and all of a sudden it gets smashed. And Legacy isn't a format that's like that. So, no, no, it's not a time to sell out. I was kind of surprised. I just thought potentially the highest point of it. Uh, the, again, the, the kind of the seemingly obvious thing about Legacy that's not true about Standard is it's the eternal format. Your cards aren't going to rotate. You know, I don't need to sell my Stoneforge Mystics after the PTG this weekend because they aren't going to be in standard in two weeks or something like that. You know, it's close to a good example. Um, you know, standard is kind of that you know that timing game where it's like I'm going to play with it, 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 I'm going to dump it. Uh, and Legacy is is 
almost exactly the obvious opposite. So, uh, yeah, I, I hold on to it. It's like we have something else to announce this weekend. Well, we're not announcing anything, but this week it's it's funny. In the last week or so, Luis has um, kind of uh, beat around the bush at the fact that he was part of the going to be part of the Community Cup team. And sure enough, on Tuesday he was announced. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, as the the, um, the team leader for this Community Cup, I I mean, looking at the resumes of the other players selected, he definitely seems like he's going to be at the wheel of this of this event, leading the community. And all, although I was going to cheer for him and the community anyway, I now am you know much more invested in it in the hope that uh, you know us Magic players actually win this thing. And it's going to be hard too because he's already on the road a whole bunch, and all of a sudden you have this this new format to uh, to kind of uh, dissect. So congratulations to him, obviously, for being selected. It was uh, kind of a bittersweet Magic TV where we did nothing but plug him for 15 minutes about how he should be selected when I'm sitting there going like, oh, come on. I make draft videos. I podcast. I, you know, try make as many public appearances and love this game as much as possible. I want to throw my hat in the ring. But uh, great to see that Channel Fireball was represented, and you couldn't have chose a better member, obviously. So, uh you know, in the next few years, just spread it around. That's all I'm saying. I agree with that, but also one of his teammates is a fellow podcaster on our network, and that would be one Marshall from Lunar Resources. I I know of Marshall. I don't know him uh, very well. How do you? What do you think of his uh, competency and play play level? He is an avid poker player, and it works out well that he was with. Ryan, and Ryan just got a job with Wizards, and it helped out well for him because basically if Ryan is the fountain of information, he is the person who guides it through. As Ryan spits out the data, he kind of assembles it and puts it out there, and it helps because they are limited specialists, and that does not hurt. I definitely think of them as you know the like one of the best podcasts for starters, I think when uh, I first got into podcasting, limited resources was in the the first three names mentioned and and one of the most important. Um, and ironically enough, I just kind of like this entire time just assumed they were high quality and never you know listened to them. I'm always trying to like uh, put my feelers out for other stuff. And you know, to be honest, when I when I have free time, I'm usually listening to like Third Power. Um, I love those guys. I still need to work at a guest spot with them. Or uh, even my, my local buddies on uh, East West Draft Cast, I'll give those guys a quick shout out. Uh, pick that stuff up; it's it's uh, it's entertaining. But um, yeah, limited resources. I mean, good luck to the entire team is what really what I'm saying. Because I don't want I don't want the community to lose. And I know Luis isn't going to have as much time as you know under different circumstances. If you you know put this tournament. A month later, then he would be able to, you know, spend a lot more time with the whole team breaking down the unified format. But I'll be interested to see how things go. Marshall is online all the time for Moto. They would be easily be able to work out deck ideas together. Hopefully, I don't. I, again, like I don't know how much uh, Luis will be sitting on Moto in the coming weeks with all this travel and tournaments. So he talked a little bit about being online occasionally. He is, he is, he is. He's you know, out there recording Mirage Block drafts for the devoted uh, draft viewers right now in, in our lull waiting for the the new current format to make it online. Shuhei had a good weekend. Mr. Nakamura knocking it out of the park, or, you know, depending on how you feel about it. I, I, I think his XO run at that Grand Prix is beyond admirable. It's very impressive. 
uh, top eight finish. Um, you know, I didn't look at much of the coverage, but uh, go team Fireball as usual, and congratulations. It was amazing to have that start that he did. It's just you read the updates and all suddenly he's nine zero. He's 12 It's like because of the quality people over there, because it's it was the European version of the tour. To go XO in a period is very very difficult. And we're not just talking. We're not just talking about. Um, we're talking about that. But we're talking about the you know like the real road warrior of the game right now. This guy is not missing an event, and to show up in Prague, which is a little more off the the beaten travel schedule. And hit it out of the park like that is incredible. Well, he was one of the most gracious people that you'll ever meet. He was, at Dallas, he was just very friendly and thank you, thank you, all the time. <laughs> no problem. Hey, I'm glad you're having a good time and enjoying it. And can't, you could symbol him up, down with the thumb, and he thumb up if he'd won and thumb down if he lose. So it was good. Uh, also, you were doing something this week, I believe. Well, I was working very hard, but I did get kind of a, I guess I'd call it a half day, uh, to head over to San Francisco to check out the new Duel of the Planeswalkers 2012. I got pretty much my own personal hands-on sneak peek demo with uh, the dev team, uh, as well as some of their marketing people. I don't have the names. I, you know, I should have grabbed the cards of the guys I met in front of me because I, I was too busy trying to extract information from these people to uh, to really pay much else attention because we had some uh, some intro decks with M12 cards in them and we had uh, the product itself to dissect, which for the most part, like, you know, I'm, I never played original Duels of Planeswalkers. Uh, it, it seemed like a, I mean, it's not as much of a money pit as something like Magic Gathering Tactics. If you, anyone out there who's listened to this who's familiar with my review of that game and um, how they had me involved in that project, but... Uh, <laughs> anyway, before I get too much down my own humorous rabbit holes, this product I, I actually endorse. I think that as an introductory product, it's great. I think as kind of, uh, for anyone out there that remembers the old, like, Duelist Magic the Puzzling um, inserts they had, you know, this this kind of video game is great. Um, you know, it, it kind of helps solve some of the problems of, you know, I think for Magic players... Having one pl- one magic player or three magic players in the same place is the worst situation. You know, two, four, or more, you can make something happen. But with one and three, it's it's really rough. Uh, you know, sure, with one, you can get an MPGO and you can draft and so on and so forth. But the uh, the challenges in this game, the more diverse card pool from the original one, um, you know, the new elements they added, the arch enemy elements made it an enjoyable play experience. Uh, is it still really my cup of tea? Not really. But uh, do I think it's a worthwhile value and great for new players? Absolutely. Um, do the original Duel of the Planeswalkers, for those of you that don't know, was great at drawing people into the game. Being at the top ten of the Xbox marketplace for as long as it has been has been a huge boon for the community. So many people walk through the door of our store who were introduced to Magic through that game and have become players directly from it. So, you know, unlike the Sony people, when I met up with, um, oh, crap. I, anyway, the development team that were associated with Wizards, uh, I was very grateful and told them, you know, that they had something good on their hands and they shouldn't screw it up. Uh, but let's, let's really get to the meat. I mean, people don't really care about that unless you're, like, avid, you know, Jewels of the Planeswalkers fans, which I can't imagine there's much overlay with our audience. Uh, sneak previews from M12, 
might be exclusive to me because I wasn't allowed to take pictures of these things. I actually haven't heard about them anywhere else in the airwaves. And if I'd known this was going to be the case, I probably would have tried a lot harder to memorize names. Instead, I just have, you know, mechanics for you. I can tell you right off the bat, there is no scry in Magic 2012. It is replaced by Bloodthirst. And for core sets to come, as I understand it from what I'm told from the conversation, actually, one of the designers there was actually one of the designers for Magic um, 2013, which they just finished design on. So this information seems above average. Uh, there will be kind of one older, you know, kind of cataloged mechanic they're going to be bringing back to showcase in each core set from here on out. This time around, we've got Bloodthirst. Unlike Bloodthirst the first time around was kind of a red-green mechanic, this time we're looking at a mostly black mechanic that also you're going to see a little bit in red and even less in green. I think it was something like two cards I was quoted that were going to have uh, Bloodthirst. For the most part, it's vampires, which makes kind of perfect sense. Who's thirsty for blood? Well, that'd be vampires. So there's like a 1-1 flying bat that has Bloodthirst 1. There's a 3-1 vampire for a black and two color list that has Bloodthirst 1. There's a 2-2 lifelink Bloodthirst 2 vampire for 4. I'm trying to remember if there are any other exciting ones. Not really. I think Vicious Hunger is also, it might be back. So in, uh, in blue, something that was exciting was we had a 2-2, like, illusion bear for a single blue. Of mm. course, the catch is it's an illusion just like anything else. So if it becomes a target of a spell or ability, it is killed. But, I mean, that guy is already way more exciting than your goblin cohorts and your, you know, blood-crazed goblins and all these annoying things that were trying to kind of boost the power and toughness for the very little mana from Corset. Uh, I don't think Blue had anything else really exciting or noteworthy. In white, we've got uh, a new Gold Meadow Harrier. This time around, it's a soldier. So you're looking at a 1-1 for a single white that taps a creature for a white. Again, it was mostly commons that they were showing me from this product because it was all the all the cards we had were selected from what was in the Duels of the Planeswalkers um, game. And, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, if there's anything else I can't think of, I'll put in the show notes. But, again, I, I wasn't allowed to uh, really take real close, you know, kind of a look at the game. They, even had, they had the taunting, like, booster box of M12 sitting there with their little fancy display. And I was like, you guys, I'm just going to crack that thing right open. Soldier, that automatically becomes one of Ojo's top cards for M12 already. Which soldier? The one that white one tap for the white. Oh, why does it automatically come out of one? Because it taps one of your opponents of creatures, correct? Oh, is yeah, it does. I didn't, I didn't. I'm not, I'm not. I guess I'm not as familiar with the Ochoisms. I didn't realize that was an auto included. But yes, the white tapper it costs one less than he did previously, and only has one toughness this time around. But I would imagine, you know, I, with this information, I would imagine that you're going to see, you know, cards like uh, Spark Mage Apprentice probably make their way back in the core set. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, you know, cards that are centered around the Bloodthirst mechanic for limited. Oh, there was a card. There was a card I forgot right there. So black has a one-one spirit for a single black that is unblockable and cannot block. It's bringing back the old mechanic. I remember that one. Well, there was like Ink, Ink Fathom Infiltrator is a, is a similar modeled card, but it's um, you know it's not like the, you think. Uh, was it Blood Craze? No, no. What's the? I can't remember what the guy from uh, Guild Pact was that when he attacked, he could make target creature not block. It was a one-one for one. Oh, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, things along those lines. So Limited is going to have a lot of those kind of interactions. So what they're teasing for 2013 is they're bringing Horsemanship back? 
Uh, they didn't tease me anything from 2013. I, I, I you know, again, I, I tried to extract as much information as possible about anything I could get, and I got some interesting information about duels. I mean, obviously, as everyone probably knows at this point, you're going to get a promo card for whatever platform you sign up for it on. Uh, and then there's going to be a special kind of event that's coming in the middle of September that people are going to be informed about through the Duel of the Planeswalkers game. Obviously, it's going to permutate far beyond that by the time it actually rolls around. But, you know, look for more information by playing the game. One of the big selling points for this product in the past was that it drove players to the stores to play Friday Magic to really get more involved at a store level, which is great for retailers. And what I'm saying is, you know, here you get a promo card for signing up for this product and buying their product. Really, you're, you're getting a rebate is what you're getting. Why not give them more incentive? If they, if they spend all these hours inside the game, why not give them something back? Why not have there be a special promo card for beating the last boss or beating a particular challenge that's difficult? I mean, what, what's, to, what's to stop you guys from, from giving that product away? Especially you can do it down the line, too. It doesn't have to be today. So that, that's something that, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, Squirreled into their ear, and we'll, we'll see if anything comes of it. You said you have another thing about the commander precons. You know, that was the other thing I was able to extract from the uh, development conversations I was talking about. Um, you know, we I, I talked a lot about you know new products coming up in the summer, and um, more information I got looks like commander is going to be a big hit. Um, it's funny, you know, talking to these guys like, oh, you know, it's. The the, uh, the deck is chock full of rares, and there's a lot of EDH staples. It was funny to me, thing is like a, a secondary market guy. I was like, well, it's funny, because that's really you know going to change what's rare. It's like cards aren't really going to be rare if they're in a box set. But uh, well, you know, whatever you say, buddy, uh, there were a lot of cool stuff. I mean, one of the, the coolest things to hear, though, was that um, you know, Sheldon Mennery and Gavin Verhey were actually involved in the design. And that they're going to have their own exclusive previews before Bridges of the Coast puts anything up on the mothership. I'd like to see Sheldon's. I, he's one person that I've been. I still have to set up a time when he officially quote retires to get him on the Meta Magic podcast. <sighs> so I'm ready to pick up. Just go or yeah, the Commander Precons you were talking about, uh, Gavin. Or... Yeah, expe- ex- uh, exclusive exclusive previews. So yeah, that, that product. Um, it yeah, just got a little bit more exciting. I obviously tried to, you know, prod more information out after, again, if for those of you out there who listened to my magic a few weeks ago, we talked about, um, like, the achievement card that goes along with the game day, and on it there was some interesting information about, uh, like, spells that share mana and kind of, like, uh, new lands that can produce mana of any color uh, that can only be used, like, in, in, in connection with your commander. And uh, I definitely got some confirmation of those things happening. So you're, you're going to be looking at, like, kind of um, new, inexpensive dual lands to circumvent the previous very expensive mana base that would, you know, get into playing a 3D color general or so, um, you know, with lands that can either only produce colors that you're, of, of your commander or only produce, you know, mana of any color that will be played, you, know, you can use to play your commander. That was, uh, that, that was at least fulfilling. Like, I was able to extract a little more information in that regard. But again, look look for uh, exclusive promos coming from those people before we get any from Wizards of the Coast, and there will be a week of those, which really tells you how much like is really stocked in this product. There's so much going on. It's good that they're supporting it with cards and not supporting it with rules. I mean, uh, I I am I, I'm not a commander player. It's not my thing. Um, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that. 
but this seems like such a great value. Like, I, I like what I, I want to pick these up, like, for myself, just so I can, like, trade away the pieces to people that obviously want more of them. Um, it seems like a great pre-order. It seems like the, the prices on them can only go up. Um, you know, it, part of that has to do with the print run. Like, if these things get printed forever and, you know, in triplicate, it might be an issue. But uh, right out of the gate, I don't think there's any reason not to get them. Article. The article of the week, I like to call it. You know, we're talking about the month-long travels, and Paul's article this week explains how to plan for it, what you might need, and the importance of doing things ahead of time. This sounds like a Paulo to-do list that he parlayed into an article because he has to get out of the country. Last time I think they went to Japan that they didn't have a hotel room, and they spent like four hours wandering around trying to find a hotel room. Now, an interesting tidbit from earlier this week. Uh, uh, again, like I'm, I'm trying to finish things on the business side, and uh, Luis is trying to finish things on the team side. And Luis, being kind of the ringleader, the the uh, leader is the best answer for this whole team. He often makes the decisions as you know, like when to fly out, where to stay, and then everyone kind of like buddies up, and you know. Like especially in Japan, like there, there's a very strict like two person per hotel room kind of thing. You can't just jam eight guys into a hotel room like you can in the states. Man, there's some gay undertones there. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, the, Brad, like sorry, Luis is walking around chuckling his butt off because apparently for quite a while now, Collywoods and Brad Nelson have had this little like rivalry going, where you know one thinks the other one's better than the other and back and forth. And so apparently, according to Luis, it's you know it's mildly heated. Like these guys are pretty serious; they want to do better than one another, and you know it's still kind of joking, but that's mostly on the surface. So Luis is walking around on Monday, like I'm like you know fi- finalizing like travel plans for especially like our our train trips and all the things we need to do to get around. And Luis is just chuckling that he's like finished pairing off everyone for hotel rooms, and the only people he didn't pair, and he did this on purpose, was were Connolly and Brad. And those two guys would find out very quickly on their own that they were the like the two ones left out and that they were going to be paired up. So that's that's the kind of thing that goes on when Luis is planning travel for you know uh, he likes to say he's doing it for like over a dozen people. And I asked him like you know why 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 do you you know take all of this onto your own plate? It seems like a whole lot of work for for you know mostly adults that should be able to figure it out on their own. And Luis is like well if I choose then you know. It's, you know, I get everything my way. I, you know, I fl- we fly on the day I want to fly out. We stay where I want to stay, and it's their own fault for not doing it on their own. So they're just going to go with wherever I want to be. And I was like, all right, I guess that might be worth it sometimes. And then you get to troll people a little bit, like he does with Brad and, and Connolly. So all in all, I guess it works out for him. Yeah, that's kind of a room I would like to fly on the wall in, <laughs> have the two of them together. I just uh, yeah, that, that's a good enough answer. Yeah. We also have the website back up. For those of you that didn't notice, and we're probably viewing other content in other places, Channel Fireball is back up and working. Um, as par- part of this project, for those of you that uh, may or may not be familiar with Zame Beg, uh, he is our official new, well, not exactly new, but he is our content manager. He is our go-to guy. So the next time this happens, we know exactly who to throw things at. See, this last time around, we weren't sure where to angle our frustration and rage as we tried to fix the problems. But this time around, well, from this point forward, we know exactly what to do. So congratulations, Zame. Uh, love you. Good luck on your weight loss bet. I, I'm sure there's no one else that's going to come close to coming anywhere near you in this competition. You'll blow them all away. So uh, well done. Well done. And uh, there you have it. Website should be back up and running. And if you have any frustration emails, you know exactly where to send them. 
he is going to thank you for that endlessly, I can see. You also have part of our new segment, the Cube Quandary of the Week. Uh, it's a question of the week, the quandary of the week, my own, my own musings from the people I talk to. Um, one of the great debates that I have seen is, uh, you know, how many X spells or burn spells you run in your, in your red section? Now, I know some people that run, like, every single one under the sun. I, ha, 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 the red sun, sorry. Uh, and I know some people that really limit themselves. You know, obviously the question really boils down to what's the size of your cube. Um, and it's interesting, like, I really fall between these two things. Like, mine is on the larger side, so I guess I could, you know, lend to more. But I really think that when you pick them, you just have to have a good reason. Like, you shouldn't include disintegrate because you can. Um, I think that, you know, uh, you should have a good reason for including any or all of them. And for me, like, cards like Banefire and Curvex Torch are pretty obvious against control because, you know, the red deck wants reach, and that's how you get there. And, like, cards like Comet Storm and Earthquake, you know, you're going to be able to hit multiple targets. You know, they function differently, and thusly, you know, that, that, you know, the fact that they're diverse makes them each includable. And then you take a card like Fireball, where it's, like, it's too iconic to leave on the sidelines. So while it's obviously not the best red burn spell by any means... Uh, it gets the call from the bench in a box like mine because, you know, I, I want to make sure that you can fireball people out of the game. It's like I have Sheevan Dragon in there when it's a strictly inferior card to other cards, but, you know, sometimes you attack with Sheevan Dragon, and that feeling is pretty incredible. What about the X spell like Earthquake? Uh, I, I, I think it's an include. I mean, Rolling Earthquake is an obvious include for those cubes that can afford it or choose to proxy it, but um, I think Earthquake is also a powerful enough effect. It, it's interesting, like, a lot of the... Um, you know, Boros decks that get drafted, the white, like, like white-red often lends itself to kind of a, like a slow-moving control deck, although that, that seems kind of awkward. And Earthquake kind of functions as a Wrath of God in many respects, even more so in the fact that white has life gain in many innocuous places in cube. So I really like it in those circumstances. But again, if you're talking about like a counter-burn deck where you want to be able to wipe your opponent's board while still being able to clock them without, you know, like, kind of, like, doubling up on how you use the cards in your hand as resources. Uh, it can be a very strong card. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a home run every single time, but it seems like an auto-include from my perspective, no matter what the size of your cube. So you're looking somewhere between six to eight? Um, again, it depends on the number of cards. You know, like, some people run, like, 30 red spells, and I think that you're, if you're devoting six spots and you only have 30 cards, that could be a bit much. I mean, for someone like myself, where I've got, you know, 45 spells, because uh, I have 90 cards of each color, let me just load the list right now and see exactly which ones I'm running. Because again, like, I don't I don't particular choose a particular number. I think it's all, all based on feeling. Like, you know, their playability and their usefulness. I have, like, Comet Storm, Demon Fire, Earthquake, Fireball, Caravex Torch, Rolling Earthquake. Did I say Banefire? No, I didn't say Banefire. Banefire. Um, might be it. Seven. Seven? Well, I think mine might even be a little bit conservative. I've definitely looked at a lot of lists where... You know, many iterations are in there. A card like Red Sun Zenith seemed like an auto-include for so many people, and for me it was really sitting on the outside being like, well, you know, you just aren't offering something different enough. Um, but again, I, I'm one of those people that runs Fireball, so you, you know, you could take my list, 
switch Fireball to Red Sun Zenith, and you might make some people happy that way. The beautiful thing about the cube is that it's always uniquely the person who designs it. Yeah, some, some of them did, uh, require more dissecting than others. Uh, I mean, I think mine is, for the most part, pretty straightforward, but I definitely have some style choices in there. Talk about what's the top eight artifacts. You want to talk about it. Why do you want to talk about it? Usually people say that when they have a problem with something, but by all means, shoot. The interesting one is Jitate seemed a little low to me, only because of how much of it has an effect in Legacy. And I guess I looked at it from that point of view instead of the life of artifacts. Uh, it's a valid argument. I think part of the problem with lists like these is, like, where is where is your point of reference? Are you referencing... The card, when it was printed in limited, in type 2, in extended, uh, in, in the entire, you know, is it, uh, looking at it, is playability in vintage today? Playability in vintage when it was printed. Um, it, it's, it's you know, kind of hard. I think we try to look at the overall canon of the game and weigh many things. Like, its impact when it was printed, in addition to its impact today across formats, um... And, like, you know, I think we paid homage very well to the fact that it was very dominant in the limited format it was in. It was dominant in the uh, block and Type 2 formats that it was in. And the various extended formats, when it was first printed, it, it saw a decent amount of play. But there were a lot of overpowered, non-creature combat-centric decks at the time where it wasn't as critical to have. It wasn't as important. Um and as you kind of span that out further, it has impact in Legacy, but it's not, like, super overpowering to the level that the artifacts above it were in other formats over a long span, a period of time. So, you know, maybe if you redo this list in another ten years, it might, you know, jump uh, a card or two. But um, I'm pretty happy with the artifacts list. It was obviously very difficult to put together, and we had to be... Uh, had to be sensitive to all that kind of stuff. I do admit I loved your look when you saw Sensei's Divining Top. You're just like, oh. <laughs> like this big groan came on your face. Like, this has to be here, I assume. I, I it, That card is um, it's so annoying. If I never have to play... I mean, like, I have to play against it a lot of times in cube matches already. Uh, and in Vintage every once in a while. Although Vintage actually probably plays the easiest. That's mostly because the, the game's are faster and the answers are more obvious. Like, you're only running a one-of in your deck and, you know, it's in the top three cards. Usually you're going to want it. I don't know. I just... It's it's so... I mean, I just... Nails on a chalkboard when it comes to playing those old formats where it was like both players had it in play and things were evenly matched and things would take forever. I like Luis's comment about... That was like the time I had two draws. And I haven't had two draws in five years. <laughs> That's just a great line of how slow and how difficult that card can be in the mirror match. But the card, I, I'm glad you had on the list, and when you're going through it, I'm like, ooh, it's not going to be on the list, it's not going to be on the list, was Memory Jar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, I think it got rated um, a little higher than I think it, it could have been. I think that, you know, when you look at it, that's one of those cards when you look at it in the larger picture, when you look at it uh, in an impact it has today, it's not as crazy but I think that it really warranted the spot for the fact that it was one of those cards where it didn't really even get to see the light of day before it was like, all right, all right, all right. this was a mistake, you shouldn't be playing this card, this was bad, this was bad, don't do that. Um, you know, famously in the hands of Randy Bueller before he was who he is today, um, 
making it, you know, what, what almost looks like it's obvious on paper when you look at it, but it was an incredible deck and incredibly fun to play with in old extended seasons and still kind of a, a, a token one of in some of the ad nauseum decks of today in Vintage. It was one of my favorite cards I had in the past, and unfortunately, if I had a set of them, I lost them. Because it was when you said Megram Memory Chart, I actually had that deck back in the day. When I was well, back in the day. See, depending on what time it was, either that card was worth a lot or it was worth not very much at all because it had been banned. But that was back with my group where we could get away with stuff like that. You'd see there comes out, and then all suddenly memory jar and artifact removal. We got to find it now. Just you just smile as you wait till your turn comes around. Oh, there. Hey, it's kind of like time walking. If you don't use it the turn you cast it, because you can like, you know, go to your next turn and unload. I mean, I, I'm so used to memory jar being needed to be used so quickly, where it's like you're uh, prepared to do as much damage as you can minus five mana, or you're just trying to like totally mess with somebody with. Uh, like, like again, we said go- Goblin Welder. Like, I remember many extended games playing Tinker Stacks, where it's like my opponent, like, end of turn, Vamp Tutors. So I was like, all right, fine, crack my jar. Like, good luck using whatever card you're going to use on the next turn to get me. You also have an FNM deck of the week. Uh, we're, you know, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the this Exarch, this Deceiver Exarch combo. Uh, there's a lot of debate whether or not the Grixis shell or the Rug shell is a better shell. Um, and here we are featuring the rug version, mostly because of its reach. Uh, the Grixis version re- requires very heavily on uh, the combo itself, doesn't really have much of a backup plan, although I've started to see the Grixis list kind of um, branch out a little bit and run other cards other than the ones that were so centered around the combo. But the nice thing about the rug version is you can just kind of do a lot of the things the kind of rug decks do and drop big titans on turn four and... You know, Lotus Cobra Jace and all that good stuff that we all love. But at the same time, you can snap in there with the the combo. Uh, so, yeah, I'm giving that one a shout-out today. My uh, my friend played the Grixis version at our local PTQ recently while I was working, so I did not get a chance to pilot it myself, despite how much I wanted to. Um, and, you know, mana base was really the biggest problem for the deck. I think he went 6-2 uh, on the day, narrowly missing top 8, and his uh, one of his losses was definitely to his own deck and his own mana base. And I think he just failed to combo the second time. Yeah. Uh, I do like the Grixis version because there's a lot of hand stripping, and you can really um, you know, claw your way back into the game with the card advantage cards. I was actually running uh, Jason Ingenuity, but again, the uh, the rug version. I really like the fact that you can you can your deck can function in two completely separate modes and still be very effective, which is hard to combat, and also gives it a lot of staying power. It's nice because even if you go off early and like would throw an Infernal Titan out there, and they blow removal spell on that, it could set up Deceiver very nicely. Plus, I mean, the nice thing about um, the rug deck is Deceiver also has a giant target on his face. So if you draw it minus the Splinter Twin, like, for example, this list only runs three Splinter Twin, uh, you definitely, like, it, all of a sudden he becomes, like, the biggest flag bearer possible. Like, every, all of your opponent's attention gets focused on this one card, so they don't, you know, all of a sudden slip, trip, and get blown out by it. So... I think that, uh, again, it adds one more kind of element to it where you can kind of push your points on tilt. You can kind of, like, change the whole kind of flow of the game with that card. I think they'll see it. I just don't know if it'll show up at the, the next major tournament it could show up. Just curious, and why only one Oracle? And there's just not a lot of room. Um, and that card was, like, you go, you go back and forth on, uh, you know, do you run zero, do you run one, do you run two, are you running four, seems excessive. That was, like, really back in the block days it did that. But, 
you know, with all this Jace action, you can kind of set up for a big turn with a single Oracle. You don't need to just kind of get it on the natural and, and hope to string lands together. We have five up and five down. Take us away. Where do you want to go this week? Well, we'll go up this time. Gintaxis? It's a surprise. It's a surprise. I think it's uh, it's kind of the first, like, mythic rare out of the set to um, beat expectations, I think is really the best thing to say. Uh, this card seemed like it was going to be gimmicky. It was going to be a one-of as a commander. It seemed like, uh, you know, it was going to not be spectacular. We already see it's not very good and limited for those of you that have played with it. Um but it is a hotcake right now. I mean, I, I can't even really explain it myself. Uh, I, I guess I could explain the, the little bit of the scarcity of New Phyrexia. Um, obviously, reanimating it turn one has uh, quite a bit of value attached to it. It's a fun card. It's a great card. Um, but it is on the rise right now. So do not, do not trade them away all willy-nilly. Looking for it for that exact reason, to have it in a deck that would be a lot of fun to play just to really screw with an opponent. I mean, it definitely seems like, for the most part right now, the casual market is kind of defining the value of this card. And those are people you do not take lightly. If you if you listen to this podcast and you're a tournament player, uh, you're probably still very familiar with the value of a card like Doubling Season and what it can go for, you know, on the trade market. Jenga Taxes, you know, maybe who knows? Maybe we're somewhere in the long term could be a card very similar. Um, but right now it's on the up and up. The obvious card you had on the list was the top of the list was Dismember. Why so obvious, Robert? Because life is nothing but a resource, and it seems like people just want to give it away. Uh, I, I enjoyed watching this card be played at the PTQ I was at last weekend. There were Elves decks running four of it. There were Blue-White decks running it. Uh, again, one of my favorite circumstances was when the um, Grixis Exarch player cast it against an opponent, and the opponent was like, all right, that's fine, it resolves. And he tried to change his opponent's life, like the... the the blue-white player who was playing against the Grixis player tried to change the Grixis player's life total on his life pad, you know, minus four. And the Grixis player had to stop him and be like, oh, no, no, I, I paid three mana for that spell. He's like, oh, just, you know, been playing it with it and against it all day, and everyone just kind of pays one mana and four life for their uh, for their stuff out. So it's, it's everywhere, and everyone has access to it, and there are enough quality threats early in a game where you need to make sure your own action happens, that this card is very playable. Yes, five kills a lot of things in this format, and it kills a lot in the block. Yes, yes. Foreshadowing from a couple weeks from now, I'm sure. Tundra. (laughs) Uh, Blue duels are up. Uh, Tundra is the one that is most up right now. Again, we're talking about right on the verge here of Providence. Uh, Most of you will probably be listening to this while everything seems obvious or it's already happened, but... um, Yes, Tundra, up, 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 up. Bayou. Bayou, a little more on the outside. I mean, there's so much talk about him to right now in Legacy, and it being, you know, a card that was maybe overlooked a little bit in the past. Extremely high-quality card. It's it, it's funny. Him to go up in value, get played more in Legacy, so that card increases in value. All of a sudden, this week, Spell Snares, you know, keep flying off the shelves because the Blue Decks want to be able to counter the... Hibitorax, as well as all the cards that can counter with Mental Misstep. So um, Bayou uh, is pretty key in casting Hibitorax, targeting your opponent, and then following it up with your giant Tarmogoyf. And then Volcanic Island. Uh, look for a lot of Grim Lava Mancers to be cast off this guy. Look for a lot of Pyroblasts and so on and so forth. Uh, again, kind of, you know, Tundra, Volcanic Island, even Trop for a little bit. All the Trop was, has been higher recently, but... Uh, Volcanic and Tundra are kind of catching up to the other blue X counterparts in as far as dual lands. I mean, Volcanic was 
Strangely, the red-headed stepchild of, of the fearsome foursome for quite a while there, but uh, their values are coming back. Down, uh, this obviously is trending because of what's happening on the blue-white cobblade or the blue-white-black cobblade deck, and that's Gideon Jura going down. Well, it's a combination of things. On the one hand, you do have a valid point there. Not as much Gideon Jura, not as much Squadron Hawk. Uh, lists are kind of changing to the diversity of the black removal and the other tools you have access to. But you also got to remember, this guy's going to be back in Corset 2012, and from what we've learned, it seems pretty much like a guarantee this guy's going to be reprinted as his original version, and there isn't going to be a new Gideon something coming around um, for the coming year. So that being said, you're looking at a lot of reprints um, in the next couple of months, so this guy's value is starting to drip, drip off already. Will this suffer the same fate as Baneslayer, Angel? <laughs> you know, so many people are trying to say that already, and I think they're, they're very different circumstances. Baneslayer Angel was good at the time it was printed because life gain was so key with the aggro decks that were running around. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch, bunch of broodmate dragons out there. There's a five-color control decks that wanted a life-linking threat. The fact that it could sit there untapped with the first life-link life capability, stopping entire armies of guys in their tracks was a big deal. It dropped off in value because the way creature decks played, the way combat happened, the way magic was played changed a lot. Gideon Jura's effect is so unique to the game. It's so powerful on the Planeswalker, and it comes into play with so much loyalty that anyone that tries to compare those two cards doesn't know what they're talking about at all. I think the long-term value of Gideon Jura is really based on its playability in a new Type 2 format, which seems very high, again, because of its unique ability. I mean, White would really have to fall off the deep end here for this card not to be good in the next year. And the only thing that really could affect its value beyond that is just the number that get out there and printed and redeemed online and drafted and opened. I mean, like, to me, that's, again, more than half the reason that you're seeing this card trend in the downward right now. Um, you know, look at standard decks four or five months from now and see if they are white ones with Gideon Jura. I would be surprised if he wasn't in there. It's such a powerful card and what it does. I'm interested to see why. Is it just because it's there's too many other pieces out there now that you could put in there in its place? Uh, as far as decks go right now? Yeah. Uh, that's part of it. I think that the fact that the Cobbley decks can now make a four-power creature on turn three with the Batter Skull also means that Gideon Jura surviving multiple bashes into his face, you know, isn't as realistic anymore. And also, you know, destroying tapped Batter Skull germ tokens is also pretty underwhelming. I mean, if you look at Standard a month ago, where was a bunch of little squadron hawks that you could fight off and slowly kill and bat out of the sky with Gideon Jura versus now, things are very different for him. The next one, which was interesting because it was almost a one-of or two-of in the mono-black or blue-black control decks, Soren Markov. Soren Markov is trending down mostly because of M12. Um, he is, you know, straight-up confirmed. His exact same version, the card we all know from Zendikar, is coming back. Uh, you know, despite how badly Conley Woods has tried to make this part of a deck into a deck, a whole deck, surrounding a deck, whatever you want to call it, He's really been on the outside looking at a competitive match the entire time. That's not to say that he hasn't been a very popular card with casual players. In fact, we sell a lot of them, and that really uh, made his value increase over the last uh, six to eight months. But uh, you're going to see a lot more of them, and I don't see the demand going up much at all. The next two, ironically, seem to be on our list every week. Uh, that would be Karn again. Karn couldn't have been on our list every week, because he hasn't been printed every week. But... 
he is trending downward a lot faster. I mean, you know, I don't like to point the obvious out week after week. And had this guy not been on the move downwards so much uh, so recently, I wouldn't have bothered to talk him out of again. But, you know, the kind of the Planeswalker honeymoon that happens with a lot of sets and a lot of cards is really short for this guy. Um, you know, out of the gate, he was super exciting. He seemed like he was going to be totally sweet. And then everyone realized he cost so much. No one really liked him. And he is quickly, quickly dropping. Um, again, it's hard not to make comparisons. You know, is he a Sark in the Mad? Is he a Gideon Juras? You know, is he really a Jace the Mind Sculptor in disguise? Um, whatever the truth may be, whatever the block formats and subsequent standard formats show us, currently a way down. Does that mean it's time to pick up a playset for under $80? Maybe. It seems like it's a very powerful effect that can go in a lot of different decks. It's colorless. But people are, you know, they're not disillusioned by this card as it stands right now, and they're uh, not buyers at anything, um, you know, anything above $17. Very interesting, because when that thing first came out, you would have thought, where would have been the ceiling of it? And obviously the ceiling of it was the immediate time it came out. Like I said, card prices that change is quite fascinating, and that's why one of the reasons to see how these go up and down always interests me personally. I still like him. I still think he has a future. I just don't know if he warrants the expensive price tag from pre-release days. Grave Titan? <laughs> he seems to be in free fall. I don't know. I feel bad. This guy had such a sweet Worlds tournament. you think he could follow it up just a little bit, but now we're looking at like a, a $10 again, which is pretty much the ceiling... Or sorry, the uh, the basement it was at when it first kind of came out. It was um, it was a sweet mythic. People liked it. People knew it had value, but they weren't really you know jumping to get their hands on this card. And uh, it's coming back down to reality. You know, is it going to be in Magic 2012? Is that cycle going to be in? It, it still feels like it's going to be. Is it going to be uh, a promo that a lot of people are going to have because it's going to be the uh, Xbox 360 promo for Duel of Planeswalkers? Which is the most popular flat platform by a landslide? Yes. Um, you know what does that mean for its value? It might stay down. I mean, creature quality might change enough in the next set that uh, he might be worth more and might be more playable. He obviously combats good old Gideon Jura pretty well, but uh, right now he's uh, feels like he's hitting bottom. Interesting. So is it time to pick it up? Uh, I think you got a little more room to wait on this guy. I think that. Um, the only reason he would go up in the immediate future was if all of a sudden he was in a deck. Because, again, if he gets printed in M12, like many people are theorizing, and he isn't in a deck, you're looking at a Mythic Rare that's going to be opened quite a bit that isn't necessarily going to have a home, so you could probably pick him up at a lower price. And our last one, Fauna Shaman. Poor, poor Fauna Shaman. You are but a rare in a Mythic Rare's world, and you aren't seeing that much action in Standard right now. And the fate of you is undetermined for the next corset, so no one really wants to touch you as you have cement feet and are heading under $4, which uh, is pretty much a first for this poor card. It was kind of like the the shining all-star rare in, uh, in M11, and if it doesn't see, you know, sweet new action and birthing pod kind of replaces its effect in some ways, it might not see anything as it sails off into sweet extended land. Do you think it could make a comeback and extend it? Or is it just that? Oh, definitely. I mean, it has, it has a powerful effect. I mean, that's obvious. And it's going to be around as long as Vengine's around and extended. So, you know, look for it to do cool things there. Has any of the pricing begun begin to change based on the fact that Modern is coming out, potentially? 
modern has already started to affect prices a little bit. Um, there are definitely people that are trying to jump again on this situation and pick up what they consider to be staples of the format. Um, Ravnica block dual lands are already a hot commodity in real life and online. I mean, not nearly as hot as they could be if Wizards came around after the Community Cup and said, this is a format you will be playing at a Grand Prix and PTQs. Um, and, like, when that happens, a lot of stuff has a lot of room to move. So a lot of people are trying to get in on the ground floor. They're trying to pick stuff up super cheap and flip it for three or two or four times its value whenever that comes around. But again, it still feels pretty inevitable. I mean, I'm... Uh, you know, bemoaning the sale of a few things because of this situation, and pretty stoked I still have a few other things because of this situation, so I'm just kind of waiting it out just like a lot of other people. Luis says, hey, this sounds like a great format. Who knows? We could be playing it. Well, I mean, a lot of people could just say it that aren't involved but have already heard about it and surrounding it. I mean, there's, there's you know, seems like plenty of, of strong, strongly opinionated, well-informed, uh, people in the right position to weigh in on this this matter, and I, I can't think of many of them that wouldn't consider it a positive and something that shouldn't be nurtured. So, again, I, I'm kind of in that boat where it feels like it's inevitable. It feels like something that, you know, why wouldn't you do it, especially when you're, you know, saying it right to our face in a, in a different arena. So all those poor people that sold off their extended cards from last season now... <laughs> So our, our old our old financial writer Jeremy Fuentes, I don't know if you remember him. Um, he had a ton of stuff from you know the old uh, iteration of Extended that he was so furious when they changed it. I mean, it's like just champions block cards, Ravnica block cards, all a bunch of foils, thousands upon thousands of dollars that he was just livid at what happened. So uh, yeah, there might be the reverse effect. We'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see what the writers think once it's officially announced and how the articles come out in the initial deck list. The other thing I want to bring up with you real quick is the influence of what a writer can say on the price of a card. Uh, Paulo mentioned uh, Spellskite in his article, mm-hmm. and it looked like Spellskite jumped by, like, oh, I don't know, 150% the next week. I don't know if that's coincidence or... I think a lot of that was tournament results. I mean, are you posing, are you like, how much can an article influence the price of a card? Yes. Uh, the answer can still be a lot. Um, I, I think there are other examples out there that I could cite where people get really excited about something. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny, you know, a lot of people would accuse us of, like, trying to curtail markets and adjust prices, you know, for our benefits. And no one really realizes that it's almost always the exact opposite for us. Uh, someone prints a deck list, someone prints an article, magicgathering.com puts a daily deck list, or, you know, Mike Flores will write an article, and all of a sudden, something will become popular overnight. I mean, the, the new, like, Suture Sisters list, like, we have sold so many cards in relation to that deck in the last week, where all of a sudden, you know, demand is so high, our supply is so low, anyone that's failed out of economics knows that that means the price is going to go up. So all of a sudden you're in a situation where people are just so excited about a new deck, some different directions, something fun, and it happens a lot in stagnant formats, it happens a lot in in times of just magic unrest, where you want to do something different, you want to play something different, you want to have fun. Um, 
and it'll it'll, it'll happen. I mean, uh, Spell Sky is a great example where all of a sudden you're like, kind of Deceiver felt obvious. People kept buying those, and those were really uncommon. But it was like, wait a second, Spell Sky goes right into this situation. That's a card I need to have. I talked about it with one of my interviews this week, and he was laughing that he said, the week before I talked about it on the podcast and said how amazing it was going to be, and nothing happened. And then Paolo writes an article, and it just explodes. <laughs> so we had some fun with that. But yeah, is there anything else we should be talking about before we end the show? Uh, your, um, you know, good luck. Nah, good luck. Good luck to everybody out there in Providence. I'm definitely gonna be watching that tournament pretty close this weekend because, while I don't play Legacy, it's still a very exciting format, and uh, you know, it's near and dear to the heart. You get to play with so many sweet cards, and you always want to see some of your favorites of old make an appearance at a feature table or in a sweet deck list. So. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, those guys are already off to Rhode Island. I've got one more week of prep to do for uh, Japan. I still have to figure out our podcasting schedule. I know there's there's literally tens of people biting their fingernails right now wondering, will we not be on the air because I will be off in some foreign land? And uh, to, be, to, be, uh, uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'm sure you have enough sound clips of me saying stupid things over and over again, and you could probably splice it together into some kind of conversation with Robert. But... Uh, We'll try to make it happen. So what do you think about this price? No, no, it's awful. It's horrible. Okay, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> I am not going to sit there and splice and edit for <laughs> for an hour show. <laughs> no, for literally tens of people that could not go with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just think it's going to be an exciting time for Magic and everybody that to see the diversity of Magic in this month. If you like any bit of Magic at all, no matter what style you like to play, you're going to see it up close, personal. Rumor has it that the coverage might increase at the Pro Tour, actually more live coverage. This time around, as kind of a sneak peek before uh, all of a sudden the doors close to the public? I am hoping so, because my thought was is that they have Rashad will mm-hmm. be there. People that have actually done coverage, Rashad will be there, and he'll be yes. doing coverage this weekend, so it'll be interesting if he gets on air. We talked about that during his interview, and he would really like to get on air during Wizards coverage. Yeah, well, put, put me on that list as well. Yeah. You I'll and be there. Do you need some help? Come, come find me. Yeah, sure. Anyone that wants to make their way out there, I have a job for you. On that note, appreciate your time tonight, and you want to sign us off? As usual, send your comments and questions to tsg at channelfireball.com. I will try to get back to everyone's emails. It's been, a, uh, a like I said, a long week now. It's only going to get longer. But uh, thanks for the comments and the stuff. I love to hear it, and I love to get invited to things, and I love to hear what's going on and try to give my opinion to anyone that uh, wants to hear it. Uh, again, you can follow me on Twitter at Tristan Gregson. Um, desperately trying to get those numbers up. Ugh. I might actually have to start following people, which I really don't want to do. And uh, hopefully I'll make my name magic more these days. Uh, really love that show. Glad to hear they have such spectacular numbers recently. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Anything else you'd like to plug before we get out of here, Robert? My email is robert at channelfireball.com. You can reach me on Twitter under the Beamy, B-E-M-E. For me, it's going to be interesting. I'm almost getting GP withdrawal where you're getting the opposite. <laughs> We'll see. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll meet up in, a, in one more event this year. Absolutely, absolutely. On that note, this is episode 13 of the Hardcast for Robert Martin and Tristan Gregson. We are out.
You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.